You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Welcome. Uh, welcome to the uh, weekend edition of Fearless, uh, a review of my weekly fire starters and the best conversations we had all week. Uh, we started on Monday talking about why Chris Rock is more manly than all the woke NFL players. Chris Rock uh, responding to Will Smith's latest apology, saying, if everybody claims to be a victim, then nobody will hear the real victims. I love it. Chris Rock is all man. I wish NFL players would follow him. Halloween. That's the over-under day when a current and or former NFL player will publicly nominate Deshaun Watson for the Victimhood Hall of Fame. If I were you, <clears throat> bet the under. There are rumors that ESPN broadcaster Ryan Clark is already working on Watson's nomination speech. Insiders believe Clark could deliver the speech today now that an arbitrator hit Watson with a six-game suspension for rub-and-tug-gate. In a 17-month span, Watson met with 20, or 66 different massage therapists. An astonishing 36% of those therapists accused Watson of sexual misconduct. It's difficult to see how Watson could be cast as the victim here. Uh, 24 women tell a similar story of Watson asking for a massage and demanding a happy ending. Uh, but reporters who regularly cover the victimhood Olympics say Clark is one of many victimhood competitors and former players willing to use Ben Roethlisberger's 2010 suspension as justification for turning Watson into a victim. And see, if you remember in 2010, in separate incidents a year apart, uh, two women accused the then Pittsburgh quarterback of sexual assault. The NFL suspended Roethlisberger for six games before reducing that suspension to four. Big Ben is white, Watson is black. At least 15 of Watson's accusers are black. Another three are Hispanic. However, all of Watson's accusers are motivated by white supremacy. Of course they are. And they're motivated by a desire to undermine successful black quarterbacks. Of course they are. According to my fictional sources, Watson claims many of his black accusers were offended when he told them this is Magnum country. The therapist thought he said MAGA country, a reference to Trump supporters. Watson was referring to his condom preference, Magnum country. Anyway, Clark isn't the only one, the only candidate considering a racial defense of Deshaun Watson. Hall of Fame quarterback Warren Moon, someone I respect a great deal, is also reportedly contemplating making a statement on Watson's behalf. Late last week, Moon jumped to the defense of Kyler Murray, the quarterback of the Arizona Cardinals, 
uh, the Arizona Cardinals lavished with a $46 million a year contract. The deal included a clause requiring Murray spend four hours each game week doing independent study. Moon called the clause a slap in the face to African-American quarterbacks. Listen to Moon talking to TMZ. We were always accused of back in the day when they didn't let us play, is that we were lazy, that we didn't study, that we couldn't be leaders, that we weren't smart. So all those different things just kind of came to the surface. Uh, after we had put all that stuff to bed over the years and, and just because of this deal that's gone on between Arizona and Kyler's. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, so the Cardinals can't incentivize and or make stipulations on Kyler Murray's work ethic because Warren Moon worked hard. Let's, let's get this. Kyler Murray isn't an individual. He's an extension of Warren Moon, Randall Cunningham, James Harris, and every other black quarterback. Now, for comparison's sake, nearly every aspect of Aaron Rodgers' personality has been analyzed and criticized. He's allegedly a narcissist. He's allegedly selfish, aloof, smug, condescending. Aaron Rodgers has won a Super Bowl and four MVP titles. He's one of the 10 greatest quarterbacks of all time. Aaron Rodgers is treated as a unique individual. Whatever happens to him is not connected to Roger Staubach, Dan Marino, Joe Montana, or even Andy Dalton or any white quarterback. This is only, this is the kind of lunacy of the victimhood ideology adopted by too many black people. Kyler Murray isn't a victim. His contract doesn't say anything about Patrick Mahomes' work ethic or Warren Moon's. The independent study clause is no different from a weight clause slapped on a consistently overweight player. But the victimhood Olympics promotes weakness and a lack of emotional control. It baited Patrick Mahomes to cast himself as a fellow victim. An anonymous defensive coordinator questioned Mahomes' ability to read defenses. It's a common complaint leveled at many quarterbacks. Mahomes, who is half black, half white, or as I like to say, African American, insinuated the criticism is only directed at black quarterbacks. Listen for yourself. I mean, obviously, uh, the black quarterback has had a battle to be in this position that we are, to have this many guys in the league playing. And I think every day we're proving that uh, we should have been playing the whole time. We've got guys that think think uh, just as well as they can use their athleticism. And so uh, it, it always is weird when you see guys like me, Lamar, Kyler, kind of get that on them and other guys don't. But at the same time, we're going to go out there and prove ourselves every day to show that we can be some of the best quarterbacks in the league. It's very weird that a quarterback would have his intelligence question. Very weird. People, no one questions quarterbacks and their intelligence. Terry, no, no one ever said Terry Bradshaw couldn't spell cat if he spotted him the C and the A. These guys know nothing about NFL history. They don't even know about current. No one thinks Jared Goff can read a defense. He led the Rams to the Super Bowl three years ago and everyone credited his head coach for telling him exactly what to do from the sidelines. And I'm just sorry. Mahomes, Moon, uh, Kyler Murray, anybody else whining about this? These guys are weak. 
their skin is too thin for leadership. And, and I say that, and I'm telling you, I like and respect Warren Moon, but give me a break, man. Either you're built for this or you're not. Why are we putting these crutches and crippling these black quarterbacks by handing them an excuse and acting like an anonymous defensive coordinator matters? That story that Mahomes has reacted to was littered with praise of Mahomes and one person said something negative, an anonymous person. It's nothing. Tom Brady listened for two decades as people claimed he was a, a product of Bill Belichick's New England system. Brady's heard broadcasters predict his de demise for the last five years. In 2016, the NFL suspended Brady for four games over deflated footballs. I've never heard Brady nail himself to a cross. And we have black quarterbacks whining about anonymous quotes. Have black men been that emasculated? Have we fallen into a trap where our entire identity is tied to victimhood? Who wants to be a victim? Why do we want to be victims? I don't get it. This is why I've soured on professional sports. I, I'm just, I'm embarrassed by what many of these black players say and how they cast themselves as victims constantly. And I can't find one of them to stand up and call this BS out. They're making millions of dollars playing a game. Criticism goes along with all of that. Bradshaw was making thousands of dollars and people were, other players were saying he couldn't spell cat. People were saying he was stupid. Are we built for this or not? Chris Rock, the comedian, is more manly than many of these black professional athletes. The 57 year old is barely 150 pounds. As a child, bullies ran him out of his high school. But now he's more courageous than men who are, are allegedly gladiators. On Friday, Will Smith released a YouTube video apologizing to Rock for slapping him on the Oscar stage. Rock responded to the apology on the comedy stage, saying reportedly, according to People Magazine, if everybody claims to be a victim, then nobody will hear the real victims. Even me getting smacked by Suge Smith. He's joking, he's comparing Will Smith to Suge Knight. I went to work the next day. I got kids. That's how you handle criticism. That's how you handle uh, your feelings getting hurt. You get back up like a man and continue to do your job. Why don't football players talk this way? Rock also added, anyone who says, Words, hurt, has never been punched in the face. All right, uh, on Tuesday, we moved on to the Bayhive, Beyonce, her new album, Renaissance. Uh, the New York Times says it has a black queer bravado. Really? A black queer bravado? What is that? I get to the bottom of it. Uh, she's just enjoying her right to denigrate, embarrass, and trash black people. That's what I heard from Beyonce. Uh, the first words spoken on Beyonce's new album are, please, mother effers. 
She repeats the phrase over and over again, adding, ain't stopping me, please. Mother effers ain't stopping me. Renaissance, her seventh studio album, is explicitly crude and profane. A New York Times reviewer described the 40-year-old singer's 16-song collection as steeped in black queer bravado. Wesley Morris, the Pulitzer Prize-winning reviewer, uh, never defined black queer bravado. The reader is left to assume that queer bravado is as endemic to black people as full lips, wide noses, nappy hair, and obscene music. Beyonce, the so-called heir to Aretha Franklin's title as the Queen of Soul, has more in common with Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion than the icon who demanded R-E-S-P-E-C-T, respect. Beyonce symbolizes the catastrophic descent of black culture and America's indifference to its fall. Renaissance is controversial for its use of the word spaz, not the filth spewed by a middle-aged married mother of three. Expectations have fallen so low for American black people that no one expects Beyonce to mature or make music that uplifts black folk. No, our only expectation is that she contains her penchant for degeneracy and denigration to black people. That explains why Beyonce will eliminate the word spaz from her latest album. Disability rights advocates complained that the singer's use of the word spaz in the song Heated is a slur against people with cerebral palsy. Spastic diplegia causes motor impairment in the arms and legs. The phrase spazzing out is mocking what happens to people with spastic diplegia. I learned all that this morning when I heard the pop singer was editing the song. I did not know the etymology of spaz. Now I do. I'm not sure I care, but at least now I know. What I find fascinating about all of this is that people with cerebral palsy care more about policing the way they're portrayed in the entertainment and media world than black people. We're the only group with absolutely no standard. The entire rap music industry is built on the use of the N-word. It is used repeatedly in nearly every successful commercial rap song. Rappers brag about killing, raping, robbing, dissing. No one cares. Beyonce uses the N-word in heated. No one cares. Every minority group aggressively polices how they're characterized in music, television and movies, except black people. In 1995, if you remember, Michael Jackson, the greatest force in the history of music, released the song, They Don't Care About Us, on the album, His Story. It was a protest song. It decried racism. It argued that the government and the power elite only pretend to care about the great mass of humanity. The song included the lyrics, Jew me, sue me, Everybody do me, kick me, kike me, don't you black or white me. On June 15, 1995, Bernard Reinwab wrote a piece in the New York Times suggesting that Jackson's use of the words Jew me and kike me were anti-Semitic. Eight days later, after issuing two apologies, Jackson agreed to rewrite the song, eliminating the offending words. 
On the same song, the rapper Notorious B.I.G. used the N-word twice. Bernard Weinrob did not care about that. Neither did anyone else. We don't care about us. No one does. I don't blame non-blacks. If we don't care, why should they? Jewish people care how they're represented. Would they canonize a rap group called Kikes with Attitude? Would the LGBTQ plus Alphabet Mafia canonize a rap group Dykes with Attitude? Does the Alphabet Mafia let anyone drop the F word in casual conversation? See, Jewish people have self-respect. The LGBTQ crowd has more, has more respect for itself than black people. We have allowed popular music to define black men as criminals and black women as hoes. Our men sell drugs and our women twerk at the sound of music the way dogs howl when they hear a siren. Maybe that's what black queer bravado is. Or maybe it's not caring how you're represented in popular culture. Maybe it's not having a standard of conduct and behavior. Beyonce has black queer bravado. She instantly bowed to the disability rights advocates while promoting degeneracy for black people. She don't really care about us. Uh, we kept it moving on Wednesday on Hump Day. Uh, Brian Flores, uh, we talked about in the Miami Dolphins, the NFL's investigation, what it proved. It proved that Brian Flores is a snitch who embraced the identity of victimhood and that being a victim the victimhood mentality is the greatest enemy facing black men. So we're gonna start by talking about Brian Flores, the Miami Dolphins, Stephen Ross, and what has happened there. And the, the Dolphins, uh, the NFL has leveled uh, some punishment towards the Dolphins for their recruitment of Tom Brady on two different occasions while Brady was under contract, I think initially with the New England Patriots, and then a second time when he's under contract with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the, the Dolphins were trying to get him there, offering him perhaps to be an executive with the team, a partial owner with the team, while also playing. All of that's illegal. He's under contract. They did the same thing, I guess, trying to get Sean Payton. Uh, they didn't ask the Saints for permission. And, and all of this spawned out of, of uh, Brian Flores' allegations about being mistreated uh, by the Dolphins and his allegation that Stephen Ross tried to get him uh, to lose games and offered him $100,000 for each game. This sparked an investigation into the Dolphins that revealed the, the tampering deal as it relates to Tom Brady and, and uh, Sean Payton. And the, the Dolphins have now lost a first-round pick and I believe a third-round pick, a first-round pick in the 2023 draft and a third-round pick in the 2024. Stephen Ross fined, I believe, $1.5 million. Uh, and, and people are like, you know, what's the take? They, they, they cleared them of the tanking allegations and basically said, look, there's no 100% uh, truth here that we can't, figure out what really went on here, that maybe Brian Flores 
uh, took some off-the-cuff comments, joking comments. There's no proof that Stephen Ross was serious about paying the guy to lose games. And so we're going to let that go. We're finding him a million and a half. We're taking away these draft picks. We're moving on. Brian Flores issued a statement yesterday about it, saying that I am disappointed to learn that the investigator minimized Mr. Ross's offers and pressure to tank games, especially when I wrote and submitted a letter at the time to Dolphins executives documenting my serious concerns. This man just copped to being a snitch and thinks it's a good look. This man gets an NFL head coaching job. Stephen Ross is paying him three, four, five million dollars a year. Stephen Ross is the boss. This is insubordinate. This idiot thinks I'm going to write a letter to Stephen Ross's other employees for the team that Stephen Ross owns. I'm going to write a letter to other employees Man, Stephen Ross is trying to get me to do something, uh, you know, I don't want to do. Stephen Ross wants me to lose games, and I'm going to write a letter and tattle on him, on the owner. The owner of the team. And this is, again, this is a byproduct of a victim mentality that Brian Ross sees himself as a victim, and it's a, it's a byproduct of people owe me because I'm a victim. And so it doesn't matter that Stephen Ross owns the team. I'm Brian Flores. I'm black. I'm a victim. And I don't have to submit to the will, the vision, the desires of ownership. I'm Brian Flores. Screw Stephen Ross. Who's, look, those NFL jobs are so rare. There's 32 of them. And when someone gives you that, you owe them something. This, and again, this whole mentality that we bought into a victimhood and this whole racial uh, idolatry thing that we have bought into, it's all poisonous. Poisonous. Because it creates idiots. We're like, Oh, the man that just gave me my dream job and millions of dollars to execute the dream job, I don't owe him anything. I'm Brian Flores, I'm black, I'm, I'm King Kong, I'm the greatest thing in the world. I, I, uh, it doesn't matter, I don't have to fall in line behind ownership. This is the, the stupid, naive, Foolish mentality that we are making pervasive among black men and black people. And that's why you have so many black employees sitting on a job thinking they can do whatever it is they want to do because I'm a victim. I'm special. There's nothing you can do about it. I'm black. If you do anything to me, I'm going to accuse you of racism and the whole world's going to come down on you. And we wonder why. NFL owners are leery about hiring black coaches when this is our mentality, when everybody in the media jumps on board with that mentality and says, you go boy or girl, 
You do that. You, you accuse the person who gave you your dream job, is paying you millions of dollars. You sabotage them if, if they do anything you disagree with or think is wrong. If I'm an owner, a white owner, if I'm a white owner, I would rather take my chances with a white coach who will not turn around and spit in my face if I ask him to do something that slightly violates his integrity. I'm just sorry. I'm just keeping it real. And again, I, I'm not, because it, we're not, the, the illegal recruitment of Tom Brady or whatever, that's so commonplace in professional sports. And the, hey, I'd prefer you not to win a bunch of games this year so we can go out and get a quarterback in the draft. That's commonplace in all of professional sports. They do it in the NBA, they do it in the NFL, they do it in the NHL. Stephen Ross isn't asking Brian Flores to commit murder. He's not asking, hey man, let's go on a trip to Epstein Island. He's asking him to do what is commonplace in professional sports. And yes, is that, what Steve, is that what Brian Flores wants to do? Lose games? No. But if your boss asks you to, or gives you the indication like, hey man, I get it, but this year we, we want you to work on developing a culture, work on uh, your coaching skills, but we're not all about winning this year. We're all about getting the budget in order and making sure we get a high draft pick because in this league, the quarterback thing is essential to success. Again, I, hey, if he were asking Brian Flores to do something that was highly, highly immoral, I would get Brian Flores writing a letter to executives and complaining about it and putting it on the record. But all he was doing was asking Brian Flores, hey, fall in line, bro. I gave you the job. I'm giving you four or five million dollars a year. Fall in line. And if we're not willing to fall in line, if we can't accept that the boss, the owner, gets to set the vision for his organization. We're not good candidates to be head coaches. It's this victim mentality and this entitlement that the whole world owes us something. That's what undermines our ability to be chosen for these critical leadership positions in professional sports and in any endeavor. Will you fall in line? And there'll be someone that'll go on MSNBC or ESPN or Fox Sports and call you a sellout. Let them call you a sellout and then say, hey, are you going to give me four or five million dollars to coach your NFL team? If Bomani Jones or Jamel Hill or L. Duncan or Mina Kimes or Ryan Clark call you a sellout? 
Are they going to give you an NFL head coaching job and millions of dollars? They're the actual sellouts because they're trying to talk you into doing something that will cost you your job. No one asked Brian Flores to, they asked Brian Flores, hey man, I want you to go, I know the speed limit says 55, but I want you to go 62. Yeah, it's breaking the law, but come on, man. We going, ain't nobody, ain't, ain't, ain't nobody getting in trouble for going 62 and a 55. That's what Stephen Ross asked him to do, and this dude snitched and tried to get the owner in trouble. Cost, now it's cost them draft picks, cost the owner a million and a half dollars. Ain't no way in hell anybody reading this Dolphin story and the fallout from it, ain't no way in hell they're hiring Brian Flores. Only an idiot, black or white. If, if, if LeBron James bought an NFL franchise, he would be stupid for hiring Brian Flores because Brian Flores has clearly shown he, he's not going to buy into someone else's vision. He's the smartest person in the room at all times. And you know what? If he were Bill Belichick sitting on two or three or six Super Bowl rings, I'd agree, smartest guy in the room. But when you're sitting on none and this is your first time as a head coach, give me a break, fall in line. Work the system. This guy has hurt black coaches. His lawsuit is hurt, and the details of this investigation has hurt black coaches. It defines them as victims and untrustworthy. And I don't care who does or doesn't like it. I'm trying, again, my problem with all these other idiots on, in, in the media and over social media, on these platforms, they don't want to tell you how to succeed. They want to tell you how to make a gesture that will make you popular over social media. Brian Flores, and again, we can go back and play the tape of, of the whole little cast of white lawyers that surrounded Brian Flores and are applauding him as he, they write uh, documents and call the NFL a plantation slavery and all this other stuff. They've talked him into some dumb shit. And <laughs> we'll get into this later, but it's, it's like that Eli Mistel that was on MSNBC talking about Herschel Walker being a house Negro and he'll do whatever the Republicans tell him to do or say. <laughs> it's the leftist. It's the le and I'm, Brian Flores looks and smells like a leftist to me and he's done exactly what they told him to do. Make a fool out of yourself, piss all over yourself and piss all over every other black coach in the NFL. Make it damn near impossible for you to get another head coaching job and make it harder for the next black coach to get a job. Ah, that's success. You kept it real. They love you over Twitter and social media. You'll never be a head coach again. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th 
Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Kept it rolling on Thursday with a different type of show. Ricky Wynn, a 36-year-old recovering drug addict, He's a hero. He's one of my heroes. He's doing amazing work uh, on his social media, on his Twitter feed, exposing the depravity and the decay, the moral decay in San Francisco. And he's been calling out Nancy Pelosi, Kamala Harris, Dianne Feinstein, and all the woke people that have made uh, San Francisco, Lord of the Flies, a living hellhole. Uh, San Francisco's descent into a retelling of the classic dystopian novel, Lord of the Flies, angered and then motivated Ricky Wynn. When the 36-year-old recovering drug addict's frustration with his crime-ridden, fentanyl-infested hometown inspired him to use his smartphone as a mirror. For the past three months, he's documented the city's decay in a series of raw cell phone videos posted on his Twitter feed, at rawricky415, that's at raw, R-A-W-R-I-C-C-I 415. On July 8th, Wynn released a 41-second video of himself standing in front of a school bus as children exited the vehicle. He encouraged them to say goodbye and get home safe. He then panned the camera to what awaited them just steps from the bus, a gaggle of homeless drug addicts lining the street. He tweeted, now ask yourself this question. Would you want your children to walk through this squalor just to get home from school? On the video, he tagged President Joe Biden, Vice President Kamala Harris, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, Senator Dianne Feinstein, San Francisco Mayor London Breed, and San Francisco's Chief of Police Bill Scott. The video has nearly three million views. That's a huge number for a Twitter feed started in May of this year and a little more, and with just a little more than 9,000 followers. Wynn is not a political activist. He has no political affiliation. Nine months ago, he was an inmate at Santa Rita Jail in Alameda County. He served 36 months for trafficking cocaine and gun possession. During the day, he works at the Billy Holiday Center, a facility that helps ex-cons and drug abusers re-enter society. At night, he waits tables at a tapas bar, the pawn shop. He works and lives in a three block radius around the uh, famous 6th Mission Street, a popular area in San Francisco. He documents what he sees on his walk to and from work. He told me last night in an interview, I love my city, it's just in demise. I feel as though these policies that are being implemented in San Francisco don't help. It's so hard for me being a recovering addict, being a criminal. The odds are already stacked against me. It's hard for me to walk down the street 
and not be aggressively offered to buy or sell drugs. It's all in plain view. People using drugs, government entities have sanctioned tents. They have basically set up glorified smoke shops for drug addicts. Anything a drug addict would want, they have it there for you. It's hard for me, it's really hard. It's a poisonous environment. What he's talking about is Lord of the Flies. That's what San Francisco is. It's headquarters for Beelzebub, one of the seven princes of hell. Beelzebub is what they call the Lord of Flies. Wynn is holding a mirror to the face of the people who claim they care about poor people and kids. He's trying to hold them accountable. Harris, Pelosi, Feinstein, and Breed are California female politicians. They're progressives fighting the evil scourge of systemic racism. So are Biden and Bill Scott. They're the overseers of a hell they created and now maintain on Earth. In a video Wynn posted on June 28th, he captured a young man on the street dying of a fentanyl overdose. Wynn resuscitated the man with Narcan, a nasal spray. It's his prescription opiate overdose treatment. Wynn tweeted, on my way home from rehab, from the rehab center I work at, I came across this young man overdosing on fentanyl. Lucky for him, I had Narcan and was able to revive him. Sadly, uh, the young man did not feel lucky. Uh, Wynn told me the guy, that he thought the guy would be thankful, but the guy was actually very angry. Unbeknownst to Wynn, he's channeling old school Michael Moore in the 1989 documentary, Roger and Me. The doc chronicled the devastating impact of General Motors' shutdown of manufacturing plants in Flint, Michigan. Roger and Me made Michael Moore rich and famous. Wynn's unintentional trolling of Nancy Pelosi's Bay City will likely land him in trouble. In the 30 years since Moore's first dock, America has significantly reduced the rewards and significantly amplified the consequences of speaking truth to power. The truth is, America's relaxing of social norms related to drugs has severe consequences. Wynn has lived it and seen it. His mother and father were both addicts. His mother walked the streets as a prostitute in San Francisco. His dad sold drugs and pimped Wim's mother. Wim, Wim, his parents, and his three siblings lived as gypsies, moving from homeless shelter to car to motel to apartment to homeless shelter to car to motel. Wim attended seven different high schools. As bad as his childhood was, Wim is convinced Things are much worse today. He told me last night, going through the 80s, my parents used to hide and smoke their drugs. They were paranoid about their usage. Paranoid, ashamed. These people today are shameless. They have no shame. They're advocating for them too much. They gotta be pushed in the right direction. We have safe injection sites. It's an oxymoron. There's no way to safely inject fentanyl sold to you from a guy off the streets you have no idea what it's laced with. The lack of shame and the normalization of drugs are turning major cities into hell holes and corrupting the kids who live in them. One of the most powerful things uh, Ricky Wynn told me last night, 
and we were talking about the original video that went viral on July the 8th. Wynn said, you can't tell me it doesn't traumatize those kids having to walk by that squalor every day. It affects me in a negative way. It desensitizes you. It dehumanizes you. It gives you a callousness that just grows. We wrapped up the week on Friday talking about the power the negative power of identity politics and how that has Brittany Griner in the crosshairs of Russia and trapped in a Cold War game that used to be reserved for men. Uh, Brittany Griner, Alex Jones, Breonna Taylor. <laughs> anyway, here's the fire starter. Enjoy. Racism and sexism do not explain the national indifference to the sad plight of Brittany Griner, the WNBA player imprisoned in Russia. Thursday, a Russian court sentenced Griner to nine years in prison for attempting to carry a small amount of hashish oil into the country. A crime that would provoke a slap on the wrist here in America could dramatically alter the course of the 31-year-old two-time Olympian's life. Griner has already spent more than 150 days jailed in a foreign country. She's a hostage in a geopolitical dispute between Russian President Vladimir Putin and the regime backing American President Joe Biden. Griner is a pawn. Putin has walked across the chessboard and plans to turn into a queen capable of forcing the United States into releasing terrorist kings. America should be writhing in empathy for Brittany Griner. Instead, we're mostly indifferent. Why? The answer is complicated. Race and sex play a role, but not in the way Griner's loudest supporters argue. In an attempt to pressure the Biden administration, Griner's WNBA coach, Vanessa Nygaard, played all of the identity cards. Take a listen. If it was a Ronnie be home, right? Yeah, it does. It's a it's a statement about the value of women. It's a statement about the value of a black person. It's a statement about the value of a gay person. Um, all of those things, and uh, we we know it. And so that's what hurts a little more. The truth is, the identity politics movement is the reason Griner's caught in a Cold War game that used to be reserved for men only. She's a victim of the feminist movement that states there's no difference between Brittany Griner and John McCain, the now deceased Vietnam War prisoner turned politician. The feminist movement redefined the rules of engagement. We no longer protect William, women and children first. We mark Griner and other women as fair game. Now we will pay an inflated price for her release. The United States has offered a convicted arms dealer for Griner and a U.S. Marine, Paul Whelan. That's a really bad deal for America. It's only being offered because Griner is black, gay, and a woman. And the regime backing Biden is a slave to identity politics. Russia knows this. That's why, according to reports, they're insisting America sweeten an already bad deal. Putin wants America to involve Germany in the trade. Germany holds a convicted murderer that Putin wants thrown into the Griner trade. This is embarrassing. 
It partially explains the indifference to Griner's plight. The rest of the explanation resides in our own corrupt justice system. It's difficult to muster outrage at the unfairness and harshness of the Russian courts when our own system has fully embraced a harshness and one-sided political motivation. We're no better than Putin and Russia. Our courts and media have defined Trump supporters as insurrectionists and terrorists. We jailed a 69-year-old grandmother with cancer for 60 days because she attended the January 6th protest. She took videos while trespassing in the Capitol. She did nothing violent. A policeman murdered Ashley Babbitt on January 6th and has been lauded as courageous. Ashley Babbitt was unarmed. She posed no threat. On the same day, Russia sentenced Griner, our Department of Justice announced the arrest of four Louisville police officers for violating the civil rights of Breonna Taylor. It's a tragedy what happened to Taylor. But her boyfriend shot a police officer before the officers fired into her apartment and killed her. You can argue her boyfriend thought the police were intruders. Okay, but let's say it was his next door neighbor banging on the door and the boyfriend mistakenly thought it was an intruder and shot the neighbor. The boyfriend would be charged with criminal negligence. Banging on a door does not justify shooting whoever is on the other side of the door. The boyfriend has faced no charges. Meanwhile, the police officers who responded to being shot at are facing prison time. Our court systems are a mess. There's no consistent logic or set of laws driving what we see from our courts. This includes our civil courts. I don't fully comprehend what's happening to Alex Jones. A politically motivated judge appears to be crucifying Jones in civil court because he uncorked a loony opinion on the Sandy Hook school shooting. Thursday, a jury awarded two Sandy Hook parents $4.1 million in damages for Jones's contention that the school shooting was a hoax. I don't have a problem with Jones facing consequences for spreading a myth that caused people to harass the parents of Sandy Hook. My problem is with the judge seeming to assist the prosecution of Jones. It creates the appearance that she doesn't like Jones's politics. When everything is politics, we lose empathy for all political prisoners. The indifference to Brittany Griner's plight is matched by the indifference to Alex Jones's plight. All right, that's it and that's all. Uh, go to youtube.com slash Jason Whitlock. If you're on Apple or Spotify, hit the like and subscribe button. Join the Fearless Army and get the new Fearless Army swag and gear. All right, love you. Have a great weekend.